don't know. In fact, we can't know. That's a core tenet of the neoliberal project, which puts faith in markets instead of people. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Ignorance by Paramore. This is our second show in a four-part series on neoliberalism, Selling Ignorance. Tonight we're speaking with Philip Murawski, historian and philosopher of economic thought at the University of Notre Dame, and author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, about how the neoliberal project is founded on and acts upon the assumption that the average citizen is too confused and too ignorant to really know what's best for society or themselves. Murawski traces the origins of neoliberalism to Friedrich Hayek, founding member of a European thought collective called the Mont Pelerin Society, who saw markets as information processors, superior to human reason. But we soon see that when neoliberalism, as a real-world political project, expects ignorance of the masses, then spreading confusion becomes an acceptable mode of operation, and lying is not necessarily a bad thing. And now, Selling Ignorance, part two of The Way of Neoliberalism on Interchange. Well, you call it a general philosophy of politics and the meaning of life as well, and situated, um, as, as the story can be told, I suppose, situated with the, the Mont Pelerin group and in the, the 40s, 1947 in particular. Um, do you want to give a brief outline of that story? Sure, yeah. Um, what I think is, is strange about this is that, you know, you run into people all the time who say, oh, neoliberalism, it's just a swear, left swear word, doesn't mean anything. And yet the same kind of people, you say to them, well, okay, um, what do you know about the Mont Pelerin Society? Nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what do you, you know, what, what do you know about the relationship of Mont Pelerin to something like, you know, the IEA in Britain? or the Heritage Foundation in the United States, or, and again, nothing, mm-hmm. don't know. You see, so I mean, the, the ignorance is so profound of the actual structures of neoliberalism that if, you know, you've got to spend a lot of time just getting people used to, you know, these are some of the things that you need to know, to know uh, who the players are, what they believe, how, the, uh, you know, how their vision kind of evolved over time. All right, so quick version of this is, uh, and by the way, this comes out of a, an early research project I did with a whole group of other people, a lot of Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, on the early history of the Mont Pelerin Society, which came out, you know, back in '09. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, what they discovered—I I see—I can't even take credit for this. What they discovered is that the real beginning is in the colloquial Walter Lippmann in Paris in 1938. Mm. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but see, we can actually date it. We know right when these people first got together. We know the sorts of things that brought them together. And interestingly enough, it's a book written by an American, but it's Europeans who decide that they have to discuss it. So that tells you something about the cosmopolitan character of mm-hmm. already. Well, Lippmann gets bandied about quite a bit all over the place. Uh, um... and, and let me just summarize in two sentences sure. why he's important for mm-hmm. them. Why it's important for them is that... Um, he is taking the position in the 1930s, in 20s and 30s, really opposite John Dewey, um, suggesting that it's not possible for the average citizen to know enough to be a good democratic actor. It's just not possible. And so what kind of world are we, do we have to live in when that's not possible anymore? And of course, it's a world 
run by experts. But then the question is, how can expertise be reconciled with some kind of anti-totalitarian government? See, these are the pro- And by the way, you know, in the 30s, who wouldn't worry about this, right? right. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that it's a problem. And uh, his feeling is that uh, basically there has to be a rethinking of economics as well. That's what these people believe who have him over. Now, the other thing about this is that even though he's the inspiration, he doesn't like them very much. (laughs) See, this is the wonderfulness of history, right? Um, So he doesn't play along with them very much after the 30s. In other words, he drops out of the story. And they themselves can't meet during World War II, right? So this whole thing might not have gelled. The only reason it gelled was that a certain number of things happened with key players, the main player being Friedrich Hayek, after the war, in order to try to constitute a discussion society to make further progress on this problem. The problem is, what kind of market society do we want? And the next thing that's interesting about them is that they are all hostile to laissez-faire. They don't believe that there's some kind of uh, stateless market (laughs) that can exist. In fact, it's the opposite. What they come to decide in these discussions um, is that you have to have a strong state to have the kind of market society that um, they believe should exist. Mm -hmm. This um, discussion is stabilized in the beginnings of the Mont Pelerin Society. It's founded in 1947. Most people think the name will tell you something about the society. The name tells you nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> about the society, and I think that was done on purpose. It's just the name of the mountain that they happened to have a hotel that they met at first time. And what most people don't realize is it wasn't a kind of a flash in the pan, as so many other meetings are. Anyone who's been to an academic meeting knows how often that happens. <laughs> uh, but instead, it kept meeting on a regular basis. Um, and it still meets today. And uh, at first, they didn't know what they wanted. So they realized that they would have to argue it out. And they did that for years and years. I mean, what's fascinating is not so much Hayek himself, but the number of very famous people who are involved in arguing this out. Um, it's, it ranges from people like uh, Gary Becker, uh, Richard Posner, but also to people like uh, Michael Polanyi, the philosopher of science, and uh, Karl Popper, who are part of this discussion. And to bring this to a close, because you can tell I can go on and on about (laughs) it, um, that what happens is it takes them about 40 years or so to kind of converge, not on a series of Ten Commandments, and people should understand that, that there's still a lot of difference of opinion within within the crew, but they more or less agree on some basic precepts. And those precepts become the basis for political organization, which gears up in a, in a serious way, I think, in the 1970s, and of course, continues to the present. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Selling Ignorance, with scholar of neoliberalism, Philip Murawski. 
Well, uh, as as you say, it's a it's a longer story and it's an involved story, and and part of the issue is that it. Uh, that has so many tentacles or is so amorphous in many ways, but it is those tenets that that stick them together in many ways and also give this, um, like I think you said before, they came together to decide what kind of market society they wanted to live in. But the question finally is, what does the world look like? And we're, as you say, we're living in it already, right? So I can look around and say, well, it, it doesn't look great for a lot of people. <laughs> people, um, it looks great for some people, I suppose. But what is it that the world is supposed to look like okay. in this society? Well, again, yeah, I understand that I'm, um, I'm in a sense distilling out some generalization mm-hmm. where there is no single text, which you know, <laughs> is there. Uh, Nicene creed of what they believe. No one has to attest in that sense, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first thing that people get confused about is they confuse them with libertarians, and that's a mistake. Libertarians are convenient fellow travelers for these people. They don't believe the same thing. Another important thing that holds them together is that a libertarian maybe might believe that markets are this kind of natural phenomenon. They just occur naturally. Um, these people don't believe that. And in fact, one reason their program is so effective, I think, is because they act on that. That is, they believe their markets, the markets that they want, have to be constructed. Uh, and then they go out and they find people who do this and, you know, encourage it and so forth. And then, of course, you know, what's the generic kind of market they have in mind when they think about these markets? The generic kind of market they have in mind is the market as an information processor. An information processor so superior, no human being ever approaches it in terms of it, uh, his or her ability to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. The market is always smarter than anyone. Now, you see, that's where you get their argument against socialism, too. It comes directly out of that. Uh, what socialism is, in their view, is uh, some person or group of people thinks that they know more than the market does and that they should control it. Uh, in their view, that will always fail. And so, therefore, you know, that's their two-line refutation of socialism. So socialism can't even exist for a long time. It's kind of a strange thing, as it sounds like that's what they're saying. They have to construct the market. Well, it, I know. See, this, <laughs> the t- no, but this right. is the beautiful tension right, of the right. political program, mm-hmm. right? that uh, on the one hand, they sneer at the constructivist uh, aspirations of their opponents, but on the other hand, they realize the only politics that will work in the long run is a constructivist politics. Mm-hmm. And so what they've done is they've developed an alternative constructivist politics. This is why I think they win over mm-hmm. socialists, because they understand that in a deep way that I, whatever socialist movements there are today still doesn't understand very well. Mm. All right, so. Uh, so there's that. And by the way, this uh, market society that they are promoting is the ideal, that there is no other ideal which which supersedes it. So, you know, this is the, the true telos of human nature, is ultimately to live through this history. Um, the most important virtue for them is freedom. But what's interesting is freedom does not have a single definition, mm-hmm. actually, uh, diverges dramatically uh, between uh, many of the different members of the the thought collective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, freedom is is not an obvious thing. 
and for them, inequality is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we should get this clear too. That uh, basically, when a market works, it is a producer of inequality. It produces inequality of resources, produces inequality of wealth, it produces inequality of political rights, and it produces inequality of knowledge. Markets would not operate if that were not true. So all these people who kind of you know appeal to more equality are, in their view, just entirely misled. They just don't understand how markets work. That's their attitude. It's it's maddening. It's it's maddening to read about it. It's maddening even to hear you talk about it because... Well, uh, but see, you have to understand them. I mean, these are the core tenets, right? Right. So this is how they can tell somebody agrees with them or not. Mm -hmm. And then there are other tenets that are a little bit less core, but probably equally important. And one of them is, unlike the libertarians, they understand that markets sometimes create problems. Mm-hmm. social problems, and they will acknowledge that, that it does happen. What makes them neoliberal is that they have a standard response to that, and the response to it is the solution to problems thrown up by markets is always more market. Mm-hmm. And you can always, you know, that's where you really can tell a neoliberal from somebody else. Like they, mo- they might agree that, uh, you know, markets threw up various social problems in a particular situation, mm-hmm. but the neoliberals will always invent another market that will supposedly take its place. Uh, a, a very good example is something like uh, pollution. Uh, you know, a standard kind of older-fashioned politics would say, oh, there's pollution, so what we've got to do is we've got to come in and uh, maybe punish the polluter or enforce them not to pollute. That's not their line. Their line is you come up with another market for pollution permits. And then that market will adequately distribute the costs and the benefits across all the parties, you see, in a way that the the political entity would not understand. Again, see how everything ties back to knowledge. Again, that politics is always grounded in an epistemic issue that they see, okay? And that their their solution is a solution to that epistemic problem. Yeah, which you which immediately every time you you say the market is an information processor that no one can know more than, and that there's this kind of um, odd obeisance to that idea, it just doesn't strike me as particularly anything more than a kind of a, a religious uh, understanding of. And I don't I don't mean to say these particular people are religious or anything like that, but to say that you create a thing that has to know more than you. And, but at the same time, just like in a religion, you create your priests and your castes, and these people then know more than you. And as I think you say throw, throughout, you create the fog of um, the fog of activity, almost right, and how you're going to go about approaching problems. So the, the let me, yeah, let me go ahead. By that mm-hmm. thing, uh, in particular, that um, if you truly believe that people are relegated to this uh, ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about. Right. Um, then uh, that is going to be the natural state of pretty much everybody. Let's let's stick on that really as hard as possible because it seems to me that that's the key issue, right? That yeah, the, the right. belief that all uh, oh, people are ig- <laughs> ignorant. Fog. I haven't mentioned right. fog yet. No, you haven't. I know it's it's like, part of like how the long game works. Yeah, that people are naturally ignorant. Right. Right. Then spreading falsehoods is not intrinsically a bad idea. Right, right. Um, and 
for that is that various kinds of people believing various things could be politically useful mm-hmm. and might smooth the path to this ultimate dominance by the market. So that's why I think people don't understand these days why um, it's become easier and easier for people to kind of stand up in public and say lies and nobody gets upset. Mm-hmm. See, as neoliberalism kind of becomes built into that worldview, then lies become <laughs> less dangerous in some sense. That for, these, for this crew, lies are not particularly a bad thing. Mm. Okay? And so that's why one finds, and let's just take, as I do in the, the book, Never Let, let's take global warming for anything. Mm-hmm. See, they are not upset and in fact have collaborated with various kinds of climate denialism. But at the same time, they also develop um, something like cap and trade, which is supposed to uh, offset climate, uh, global warming. Now, how could they do A and B when A and B seem contradictory? Well, see, people don't understand that A, the lies, is simply a way to smooth the path to B, more markets. Right. Okay. See, this is a political doctrine that actually understands political activity pretty well. That works. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as we've seen time and again, I mean, it's becoming more common rather than less. It's time for a break. Tonight I'm speaking with Philip Murawski, author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste. You're listening to The Planiac by Palomar. More interchange on WFHB in a moment. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's episode is Selling Ignorance, 
part of our series on neoliberalism. I'm speaking with Philip Morawski, author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown. Coming up, the wily political fortitude of the neoliberal project. When political disenchantment is seen as a positive effect of market societies, and while neoliberal actors say one thing and do another, often co-opting the left into their projects, how is an alternative to neoliberalism ever to succeed? Murawski argues the left needs to leave classical liberal ideas behind and come up with a plausible modern counter-argument to the neoliberal multi-level long game, the telos of market domination. It's, 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 again, it's one of those things that as, as you, you begin to, to try to figure out what it means to be a person, what it means to be a thinking being, what it means to develop yourself. Uh, you make these points throughout too, the, the difference between know thyself and uh, express thyself or make them thyself differently. These kinds of things are interesting. Uh, you quote Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher saying economics is the method, but the object is to change the soul. And, you know, so again, I don't know what the soul is being changed into for those guys <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know she's any number of times she comes up summarizes their doctrines in a phrase i mean it's really that's pretty beautiful right there yeah, yeah yeah that she was able to do that well uh the and then at the same point that's when you also quoted will davies saying that dependence upon a strong state uh to pursue the disenchantment of politics by economics right. um so maybe you could expand on that a little bit yeah basically they know that and, and they expect that politics is unsatisfying mm-hmm. people. And in fact, they want to encourage that. They want politics to be unsatisfying for people. For example, one of their minor doctrines is, um, for, uh, and a number of their economists have argued this, that it's, it's irrational to vote. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. This is one of their doctrines, that mm-hmm. it's a rational vote because if you were truly rational, you, know, you would calculate what are the, what's the odds that my thinking little vote would make any difference in anything that I'm, you know, I vote on. <laughs> and of course, it's vanishingly small. Therefore, why would I waste my time doing it? Mm-hmm. I mean, see, they, they love stories like that. So the question is, you know, what you should stop trying to participate and have a participatory democracy, because that's just a waste of time. What you should instead do is kind of uh, abase yourself before the market. When the market tells you to do something, uh, instead of fighting back, you should learn to do it. Mm-hmm. Various ways. So I mean, um, it, it, and notice what that does—that that takes your eye off the political. And, and again, there's an irony, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who are more political than these guys? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're they're all about politics. Right. In fact, they preach that politics is a waste of time. <laughs> that one should just become uh, the person that the market wants. Right. You know, there. It's such a you know, do as I say, not as I do. It's odd to make it that simple, right? That they're going to say a lot of things while doing so many uh, other things. In fact, as you point out, often exactly the opposite of what they say. But on the other hand, I also think that, uh, especially in America, people uh, conflate politics with parties. You know, like mm-hmm. we agree enough with people and we join their party and that kind of stuff. These guys are not like that. They don't. You know. They have different principles of organization. Well, I, I, I understand that. And I think um, 
and I, and I, I hear also what you're saying, and you've said many times about the the left as a political movement not having an understanding of how to how to deal with this or how to change uh, um, in order to combat any of this. And one of the things that I think you bring out throughout is this maybe it's where left uh, the left is stuck or the idea of uh, classical liberalism sticks many people who have this sense of um trying to you know create a, a good life and for all and this kind of uh, you know idea that the the government uh is an is a, a watchman as you say the night i guess a night watchman state who sets boundaries but uh the market um um, can can sort of do things, and then you have to correct them in order to protect people. That's the stuff yeah. of the 19th century. Yeah, that they developed their doctrine to get around. To, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Now, I think the problem with the left is that are, is the left the conservative party here that wants to go back to the 19th? <laughs> it's, it's, it does seem that, that way. Is, right, that right. is the problem. It seems right, to me with right. the left. And let me just say one thing. I mean, you know, we could go on and on about this, but. Let me say one thing about that, mm -hmm. that I get tired of all these people who talk about the market as if it's encroaching on whatever they value, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. That's 19th century classical liberalism. Mm. That's how it works, okay? Um, if, if people on the left are going to depend upon that vision of the market, then basically they're always going to be snookered by the economists. Hmm. I mean, that's just what's going to happen, and that's what happens all the time now. They're good schnookerers, the economists. Well, but so let, right. let me bring it around to the point, not yep. sound totally um, uh, negative about all of this, <laughs> that the left needs to rethink what markets are. Mm -hmm. And they have to have a plausible story, which could be then pitched against this information processor story, the neoliberals. And then there would be political contest. Hmm. There would be a serious political debate for the first time, but I don't see that hardly happening. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, and I love all these people, but they all think going back to John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s would be the, the great... Right, uh, a kind of Krugman, Krugman yeah, story. Or whoever. Mm -hmm. and, it's not. I mean, it is nostalgia. Well, the problem, as I think you 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 demonstrate throughout in in most of your books, though, is that you know we live within this particular metaphor, and you know when you say how can you come, how am I going to come up with a, a a metaphor that isn't an information super processor well, metaphor? See, how did Hayek come up with the information? You see, right, right. I don't know. <laughs> right, who knows? Well, the answer. Um, did they start out right in, in 1947? Right. this mother right. no. thing? Right, no, sure, no. no. Yeah. The, what they did instead was they worked on mm -hmm. what they believed. It's a long game, what yeah. What their yeah. ideas right. were right. first. Right, And then once they had a certain amount of convergence onto what those ideas were, then the next stage was kind of beginning to roll it out as various kinds of projects in right. some countries. And, of course, it would start local first, but... Yeah, because they they were cosmopolitan, their ambitions were cosmopolitan, right? Ultimately, right. the purpose was to to have uh, a kind of a, pro a political process. Right, right. And, and uh, far from this being, again, abstract, I mean, I think now we see in something like TPP or TTIP, mm -hmm. that is precisely the apotheosis of this project being rolled out. Mm. You know, first you, you develop... And, and get certain neoliberal policies in various nations, 
And then what you do is you try to make a world standard of these policies that could no longer be rolled back at the national level, thus locking in the world into this. I mean, I think there's a beautiful example of their, A, long-term thinking, and, in a sense, their uh, hierarchical thinking. Mm. You see, you start with the ideas, you work outwards to you know, local political projects, uh, you gain recruits, but then, you know, ultimately you try to build up to a larger and larger setting. That's what they do. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Selling Ignorance with scholar of neoliberalism, Philip Murawski. Again, I'm still trying to figure out what it is that long game is. The long game is I'm, you know, this group's still going to be in power. What's the world look like in a hundred years in this place where markets do this thing? Or you know, they don't know, of course, because they're ignorant like everybody else. Oh, although, yeah, <clears throat> one, if we want to try to make this concrete, I mean, I love going back to the global warming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, do that. I, I like when or you're talking not. about that. Yeah, but B because it really does answer your question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to make the case in, in Never Let that they actually run multiple projects, which uh, themselves have different time frames. See, I am trying to answer your question. You are. I know. I know. And I that know. The, sh- the short time frame is often kind of the simplest, but also the most disposable project, and that is denialism. For mm-hmm. a while, mm-hmm. we promote denialism, that the, the globe is getting warmer, and what that does is that buys us time for the other projects. Right. Okay. The medium-term project is cap-and-trade. That's great because it's an actual market, on the, and rich people can make money off it, which is always, of course, you know, a good sign. But on the other hand, I think that they actually didn't believe that cap-and-trade would uh, slow down or halt emissions. I don't honestly think that they, they believe that. Now, that's an interesting question. could be discussed, you know, looked into more. Mm-hmm. But it's an intermediate project. I mean, people, you can get people from the left on your side. Right. In fact, that's a really important point, mm-hmm. that you could sell this to lefties and they would start buying into it. Yeah, um, both Will Davies and other people have made this point, that <coughs> many uh, neoliberal projects are ultimately instituted by supposedly left parties. Right. And, you know, they're really good at convincing left parties to do things like that. So that's that's important. But that's not the ultimate solution. Like, what's the world? Just like what you asked me, 150 years from now, what kind of world are we going to live in when, you know, it's it's like ungodly hot and there are all these disasters? Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, they have groups in think tanks that think about this. Right. And their answer is geoengineering. That is, what we're going to do is we're going to have private firms do things like spew sulfur dioxide up into the upper atmosphere to darken the planet so that we can live on. Mm, makes perfect sense. You see what I mean? <laughs> so you're asking me, well, what is it that they're finally after? Well, there is no final. Mm-hmm. There is there. But they do have a vision of what to do in the immediate term, the medium term, and the short You seem to be hinting at that there is a final action, though. I think that maybe I heard you speak on something like this before, and you had this, you, you hinted that, you know, that there is a an end game that that understands that the that the 
that these things aren't working. You 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 call this, I think, these science fiction ideas. Uh, um, I mean, maybe you called it blue sky at some point, but I think you also said, you know, these are science fiction ideas, and they're they're they seem a little nuts, and maybe they are nuts. I don't know. I I haven't had any, uh, you know, I've take, taken any chance to to take a look at it. But what you're saying sounds nuts. Um, but you know, it's like having a volcano go off, you know, and and darkening the sky, and and but uh, what's is there, do you have a sense that there's, there's just like this apocalyptic space that they're, they live in? Or, I mean, <laughs> that just sounds crazy. Oh, no. See, I think that the science fiction ideas for them are precisely them providing something that classical liberalism never had. Classical liberalism never had a wonderful, shining hope future hmm. that they could provide. I mean, it was always kind of like more of the same. Right. Like keep the state in check. You know, mm-hmm. and stuff, right? No, 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 no. They're much smarter than that. Um, they realize that out there in the long term, they have to have some semi-crazy science fiction-y stories. And that these stories will uh, give people something to hope for and work on. And in the meantime, of course, they'll sign on to the, neo- the rest of the neoliberal project. Mm. Let me give you another example. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, um, for a long time they struggled with the concept of money because, you know, money is controlled by the state and somehow that, that makes them nervous because they can't always guarantee that neoliberals will control the state mm-hmm. <laughs> or control money. So maybe this is a weakness of capitalism, you know, it has occurred to them and so forth. So what, what do they think of? They think of something like Bitcoin, you see? Mm-hmm. We could imagine a world in which the state no longer controls money. And, you know, whether it'll really happen or not, I don't, it, who cares, in mm-hmm. a sense. It's, that's not the point. The point is the science fiction of it. Hmm. Okay. So they do this for all kinds of things. There is no grand science fiction. They're going to offer um, a, a brilliant future of weird, technological, crazy stuff. And that's the mark. That's the kind of thing that the market will bring us. Hmm. Wow. Well, I guess when you try to imagine those futures, and I think there's one you point to, a, a piece of fiction you like, the Gary Steingart's super sad true love story, yeah, um, yeah. which is... Which, which, I think it's, he is so perceptive, mm-hmm. it's almost scary. But of course, you see, it takes a Russian to come over and see what neoliberalism right. is doing to the culture, too. Right. I think that really, you know... Growing up in it, you can't see it, as right. well as an outsider. Right. Well, there's a, I, I, there's a little... Um, uh, a little bit that I actually just got through it, uh, where he's talking about his his job or the uh, Lenny Abramov his job and his boss. He says his boss tells them uh, all the post human services staff to keep a diary to remember who we were because every moment our brains and synapses are being rebuilt, rewired with maddening disregard for our personalities. So that each year, each month, each day, we transform into a different person, an utterly unfaithful iteration of our original selves. How history is not supposed to matter to you personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by the way, their hostility to history mm-hmm. is also a, a, a real distinguishing characteristic. When you get somebody really sneering about history, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> at least one symptom of somebody who's probably very much taken with neoliberal doctrine. Right, right. Hey, you know, I don't know. It's time for another break. You're listening to I Know But I Don't Know by Blanca. 
More with Philip Murawski on the neoliberal project of selling ignorance when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's episode, Selling Ignorance, is a conversation with Philip Murawski, part of our series, The Way of Neoliberalism. In our last segment, we look at sources of knowledge in the neoliberalized world, from the power of thought collectives to the faux epistemic authority of market-inspired information spaces like Wikipedia, which Murawski has called a fetid swamp of misinformation. Finally, a look at how a Nazi theorist and the father of neoconservatism inspired the neoliberal politics of knowledge, along with the increasingly common political tactic of telling two stories, one to the public and one to the insider elect, that we've now seen one candidate for president openly defend in the second debate. I guess, you know, generally uh, it would be worthwhile to talk a little bit about how uh, the work you're doing um, is an interesting thing to talk about, too. Your argument about the thought collective itself, 
uh, is often you know brought down as a conspiracy thinking and so not valid and that's not the proper way to to do things but you talk very very much about the the way you do history and the idea of histories of a thought collective comes I think you say out of the history of science yeah. so that these are these are you know real people doing real work thinking real thoughts together and and moving in and out of their lives and it's not the single per you know great man version of history or or things of that nature that I've had a tremendous aversion to that individualist cast mm -hmm. of history, and that's been true long before I started working on this. So, for example, you know, I, the early work was where did neoliberalism come from, and it wasn't the result of a genius. It was the result of a whole bunch of people in different countries, you know, appropriating a kind of a physics metaphor and then turning it into a story of how a market works. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a thought collective story in a way. Um, and I also think a lot of this, it has to be, I mean, if we're really serious about this, that um, historians should be more working as thought collectives themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take a look at the uh, the original work that we did on, on the road from Mont Pelerin, mm -hmm. I mean, that was a collection of something on the order of 30 people from many different countries who didn't know enough about what each other were doing, and they were all working on the same thing without knowing it, and bringing us together. I mean, we learned a hell of a lot more, a lot faster, simply by being brought together to work on it. Mm. So I just think that in this country, there's such a predisposition to personalize knowledge, make it the thoughts of it, that person. And that's what keeps people not seeing uh, the larger structures of how knowledge uh, changes, how it works, how sciences move, so forth and so on. So it isn't just economics. I think it's a, a, a particular bias as to how people understand knowledge itself and its changes. Well, but uh, you, there's Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's I mean, all I need to know. It's, all, yeah, it's a person. That's, it. that's, right. People, that's are just, right. people are just fascinated by you know, trying to understand history through right. the eyes or whatever mm -hmm. of, of a, a single individual. You know, basically what it does is it just distracts your attention from right. all the larger social forces that are operating at the time. Right. Which is, you know, many people in the United States are perfectly happy doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to ask you two two things in particular. One, um, I, I I wanted you to to uh, help me uh, help uh, a friend of mine asked me the other day about Wikipedia, and I I I'd noted in your various works, you know, and I, I think you have an essay in particular in the the Mount Pelerin you know, book. Um, but you basically say the you know the internet generally is a fetid swamp of misinformation, and that's a good uh, for the neoliberals. You know, the ignorance is important, uh, but uh, you well, say that you Wikipedia know, is important. Don't know mm -hmm. that Jimmy Wales, right? The, that he was one of the starters of, of Wikipedia, mm -hmm. has himself openly claimed that he got the idea of Wikipedia from reading Hayek's Use of Knowledge in Society. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing, you know, that, uh, you know, this isn't me sneering at Wikipedia. Right. It's that Wikipedia itself isn't yet another instantiation of this change of what knowledge is, what good knowledge is. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you can crowdsource knowledge and get high-quality knowledge out of that is a neoliberal idea because that gets closer to the market. The market always knows more than any individual. But is it one they believe in? I think, you know, this is the issue. I mean, again, believe may be the wrong word, but if... The, so what's, you know, what's the value of it as a market 
I don't even know how to characterize a lot of these things. You know, the idea that this is an information space or a place where we find knowledge and what knowledge means anymore is it just gets confused in, in these conversations for me. Well, I, you know, I did write a little bit about this. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to go into it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the example I was using, the obvious example in the Mount Pelerin book, was neoliberalism itself. Mm-hmm. And the, the entry into the Wikipedia. In Wikipedia. Right, right. Uh, help you understand what was going on. And in fact, my argument was, if you just look into their own discussion pages, I mean, what you see is just insane confusion. <laughs> they have not, in their own internal discussions, they're not even sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Wikipedia also encourages this mistaken belief that if you just go to a source and cite the source, you validated the knowledge. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, that's, on the face of it, that's just crazy, but nobody, you know, questions that when they, they start doing this kind of stuff. And um, the, the pro- maybe the most important thing to get out of it is that this is the beginning of a business plan of now what we now understand is the business plan of the Internet, which is to get all kinds of free labor mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> to contribute something, God knows, you know, data, whatever, so that it could be used at another level for other purposes. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, you might come back and say, wait a minute, no, 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 Wikipedia doesn't make money. Well, sort of, we could go into that. But what's more important is that Wikipedia was an important uh, intermediary for helping Google come to dominate search. Hmm. And see, so I mean, that is really part of the, 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 the kind of the logic behind this whole interplay that's going on. So it, for, even now, Wikipedia searches come up usually on the first page of Google. Right, right. right. See, if that didn't exist, then Google would be much messier wouldn't produce right. <laughs> seemingly as authoritative results. It's interesting because when I go to the yeah. when I go to the Yahoo, that it doesn't come up. Yeah, yeah. see, right. that tells you something. Right? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. See, much of what neoliberalism has thought through and works on these days is how to turn knowledge into this advantage. Hmm. Right. In particular. It's got to look like market knowledge because, again, no human being can be trusted, blah, blah, blah. Okay. By the way, no, nobody who contributes to Wikipedia can be trusted either. Right. He, he really did get the idea, at least in part, from reading Hayek. Mm. Okay. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Selling Ignorance with scholar of neoliberalism, Philip Murawski. Well, uh, before I let you go, and I, I appreciate you spending so much time with me, I, I do uh, want you to speak a little bit about Carl Schmidt and Leo Strauss, if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. Um, the neoliberals have a set of theories of politics um, as part of their discussions. So, And another mistake of the left or outsiders is to see that all politics is reduced to economics. That's not right, that they come from this continental tradition of understanding politics, uh, which is not as familiar in the United States. And uh, this tradition has a whole bunch of people involved with it, but Carl Schmitt is one. And uh, Carl Schmitt uh, preaches that sovereign is he who is able to uh, define the exception. Hmm. 
Now, Carl Schmitt was a, a Nazi political theorist? Yes, he's a Nazi political mm. theorist, although he's got an interesting history in and of itself. Mm. Uh, and this idea that you have to be prepared to intervene in what looks like a crisis is actually very central to what the neoliberals say to each other by the time we get to the 1980s. Mm. They know all that. Okay. So the question is, where did they... And by the way, that even includes people like Milton Friedman, who usually is not very deep on, on politics. Okay. Um, so uh, where did that come from? I'm arguing that came from that middle European Austrian tradition Okay, that, that slowly filters into the rest of them. Okay. Now, uh, Leo Strauss is interesting because he also comes from that tradition. And in fact, he was one of the main uh, interlocutors of Carl Schmitt in the 20s. Um, uh, Strauss moves over to the United States, guess where, University of Chicago. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, in the uh, 40s, around the same time that Hayek does, okay, although he moves to politics, okay. Um, and Strauss is important for the neocons these days. I hope I don't need to go into that. Mm -hmm. that so that's important. He's an important right-wing thinker. But another reason he's important is that he thought deeply about um, what if you really believed that the vast mass of people can't understand politics? Mm -hmm. Which is a good question. And of course, this goes back to Plato. But still, um, he, he takes that very seriously. And what he does is he makes a series of arguments that um, basically what you would have to do is you would, your uh, pronouncements would have to operate on a couple of different registers simultaneously. Mm -hmm. In other words, that they would be understood one way by the masses as that they are aimed at, mm -hmm. but then they would have to be understood in an entirely different way by the uh, the insiders to your political project. Yeah, the elect. Yeah, that's a Straussian mm -hmm. argument. Okay. Yeah, I would I would argue that he got the neoliberals kind of discussing some of their political activity this way. Mm. That is that, I, you know, they are not great readers of Plato or whatever, but I, they did, Hayek for sure, knew Strauss, a couple of others of them knew Strauss as well. And Strauss talked precisely about these issues at Chicago, right, when these guys are organizing. So um, what's the importance here? The importance here is they've become much more sensitive to the way in which you have to kind of say one thing and do another thing merely to operate in politics, not necessarily just to pursue their projects, but in general, that's what politics looks like. And they take that to heart, whereas I think, again, the left is kind of these, you know, starry-eyed people who think, oh, if I just express my heartfelt truth, everyone will see the way and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they don't believe this. And so Strauss is a very good example of how they learned some of this. I don't know if this is the most important takeaway, but it's one of those ways in which you want to protect yourself from this generally, right? Where you say to yourself, there there are stories that are told, and I have to figure out a way uh, to understand them as being stories told to sort of direct and manipulate what I'm doing. Well, uh, I, yeah. you could think of it that way, but I mean, I tend to think of it instead, again, as the collective talking mm -hmm. among itself. And... Uh, let me give you two examples. I mean, one example is we got to have Milton Friedman's. 
the guys that go on TV right. who just say, oh, market's wonderful, government bad. See, even though they don't really believe that, right. we, gotta, we have to understand that they don't really believe that. And then there's yeah. a George Stigler right. who, you not surprisingly, people don't know his name as much, but equally important in the, the Thought Collective, mm-hmm. who says, well, you know, Milton's okay, but really we're not going to win by convincing the masses. Mm-hmm. That's not how it happens. What we have to do is we have to come up with ideas for our patrons that they don't even know they want yet. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and I would argue that... Um, not just having one, but having both is a very effective political strategy. Mm. And those two people actually, you know, praised each other up until their deaths. So they agree that they're both part of the same project. But, you know, you couldn't be more different about, you know, what are you supposed to do about the politics of knowledge of our project? Well, um, I'd like to say that I have a greater, I do have a greater sense of things, but as you say before, the, the difficulty of trying to talk about it is that you have to realize that it's a project, it's not one thing. But, but there is a definite thought collective direction, right? There is a place that people that believe these things want the world and its people to, to go in. And moreover, I mean, a, a, a very good sign of that is they can recognize who's roughly on their side, mm-hmm. part of their project, and who's not. Right. Okay? I mean, so that they make distinctions like that all the time. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is understand, you know, how can they tell? Right. How do they know? Well, it's one of the things that I think troubles many people is is the idea that there is, uh, and all these ideas that kind of filter through, the idea that there is no such thing as society, that, you know, that if you can't know more than the market, then, then you know, ignorance is, is almost a good thing. Uh, you know, how it is that the collective perceives the human as an individual is is not very, there is no worth in that sense but there's very well there's no justice right well yeah i think I'll say that, right too. i mean it's right. not me calling names <laughs> certainly right and say right. there's thing as justice people are believing in the will of the wisp yeah, and so, but but again, as you point out throughout, these are people who believe very much in their own individuality Right. That these ideas that we're living in, you know, I have to continue to change who I am if there is such a thing as having an identity anymore. Uh, This is not what someone who is an Mont Pelerin Society member or someone in in a Coke Foundation or Heritage or whatnot. They're very firmly sure of who they are. Yeah, so the rest of us are... are They're being played, except again, you know, you've got to see how they see it. I mean, the vast mass of people are politically confused, in their view. That's just the way it's going to be. That's it for tonight's Interchange, Selling Ignorance, the second in our four-part series, The Way of Neoliberalism. We bring the show to a close with So Complicated by Van Morrison. Our guest was Philip Murawski, author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, and historian and philosopher of economic thought at the University of Notre Dame. Next week, part three of The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Me Incorporated. Our guest is Ilana Gershon, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University and author of the forthcoming Getting a Job in the Digital Age an anti-advice book. 
The basic metaphor people use to understand what it means to be a worker has changed. People used to think that they owned themselves as though they were rentable property. Now they think they own themselves as though they are a business, a bundle of skills, assets, qualities, experiences, and relationships that must be consciously managed and constantly enhanced. People are now encouraged to think of themselves as the CEO of me, or me incorporated. Selling me incorporated on the next interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Time I shoot.